Hi everyone and welcome to Noise Busters. I first want to say a big thanks to all those people that have checked out our previous episodes. The feedback has been pretty amazing. What do you think, George? How do you think it's been going? It's been great, yeah. Considering it was just me and you having a chat. <laughs> I know I couldn't quite believe that everyone was that interested in our little sad lives. I, quite... wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as say it's everyone, but um, more people than Every, I thought. Everyone that I know, yeah. <laughs> So, onto this episode, we will be touching on various elements uh, around this person's career, um, but we're waiting towards aviation, really. Um, George and I are chatting to James Trow. Uh, James is originally from Durham in the northeast of England. We won't hold it against him. He's the managing director of Noise Consultants Limited and is recognized in the UK as a leading expert in the management and assessment of aircraft noise. James has more than 17 years of professional experience in environmental consultancy and has extensive experience in the field of environmental noise, working on large projects for infrastructure, requiring the development of modeling, monitoring approaches, along with detailed assessment and mitigation strategies. He has also had significant roles in strategic noise mapping and noise policy projects. James's wider project experience includes work across a range of sectors, including transport, energy, renewables, mining, planning, and also supporting UK defense infrastructure organization. Uh, through the assessment of noise from various military facilities. Uh, prior to establishing NCL in 2017, at the ripe old age of 34, he was a technical director at AMEC Foster Wheeler, where he led the noise and vibration aspects of a number of high-profile private and public sector projects. Prior to joining AMEC Foster Wheeler, James worked as an acoustic consultant at Hepworth Acoustics. So hi, James. How are you doing? Um, good, Dan. George, nice to be here. Stuff. Um, yeah, so we just wanted to get you on to have a chat about your life, the way things are going, how you are, um, and kind of get that angle in. So I really want to dive in to the background stuff, first of all, if that's all right. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so how did you get into acoustics? What started it off and why did you choose the field in the first place? Well, I think it was a, a realisation at the age of 16 that I wasn't going to be a professional musician um and i wasn't really going to be cut out for working for people like the bbc or in recording studios or things like that so um i kind of did what anybody would have done at the time and and kind of had a bit of a sulk and then uh worked out that actually i was pretty good at maths and i was pretty good at physics and after speaking to a few people at my um sixth form college it became clear that there was an option and really through a process of elimination it was acoustics that seemed to stand out on the on the uh, uh on the UCAS guide uh, so i ended up applying for uh, a number of courses um across the across the country southampton essex um surrey and then salford and the course at salford and uh, southampton were the only ones where they were pure acoustic courses a lot of the ones i applied for were things like physics with acoustics music with acoustics um and you know things went the way they they needed to in my a levels and i ended up on a on a acoustics degree at, at salford uh, which was mainly driven by not wanting to be too far away from home in the end um but that's where i ended up cool so you undertook the pure acoustics course like like i did at salford what are your memories of that course and what were your interests in that course specifically? What what was the kind of key things you took away from that? Well, the first the first year, I was pretty bored, to be honest. Um, you know, most of the maths and the physics bit were pretty easy. You know, I didn't really mm. feel all that challenged. And actually, I remember having a conversation with the um, with one of the, the course 
lecturers at the time saying, I think I might be on the wrong course here. I might want to move over the physics course. And he kind of convinced me just to stick with it. And he actually let me sit in some of the, the year two lectures where it kind of begin, it began to become a bit more kind of, well, this is, this is kind of what I want to do. Um, and it was only really in the second year I began to get a bit of a feeling for, well, this is, I've picked the right subject for me here. You know, there was bits of work around recording studios, you know, stuff about, you know, how were you applying acoustics in um, different sectors and, you know, where does it sit in the in the world of research and all this kind of stuff. So it was only really in the year two that I, I began to get a bit of a handle on it. And when the experiment, te- when the experiment stuff started going on, I thought, yeah, this is, this is this is the place. This is the, the degree, and it kind of all fell into place from there. Really, that's very interesting about the course. But tell me about the stuff that wasn't to do with the course. Tell me about your memories of Salford, because I I spent a little <laughs> bit of time at Salford. <laughs> maybe for, maybe for some people who've never heard of Salford. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd hope that over the course of your podcasting series, that there's. Uh, a number of people from the university that participate and give possibly a more um, professional view of, of Salford. But at the time I I went to Salford, um, it was it was going through a bit of a renovation. Uh, I'd come from a, a relatively leafy kind of suburban part of Durham, and when I got there, um, it, it it was very built up. Uh, there was a mixture of people from different backgrounds, and um, my abiding memory was the first night I was there and there was a ram raid on the cash machine <laughs> in the uh, ground floor of the building that I was actually um, that I was actually um, living in through my first year. And we only knew about this because um, we heard the banging and then about five minutes later, there was a police helicopter and armed police on the scene. So that was my first impression of the place. Um, and you know, there was a bit of, a bit of reflection at the time thinking, well, you know, this course better be worth it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know it, it brought you out of your comfort zone. I mean, one thing I would say about living in Salford for, you know, even three months is that it made you a bit more street rise. It's certainly not like that anymore. Um, when I go back, the place is a lot more tidy. The university's been renovated beyond belief compared to where I went when I was there. Um, and, you know, it, it feels a lot, um, a lot safer, that's for sure. Yeah, so you worked in the industry for nearly 17 years. Has it been what you expected since you left university? Well, I didn't really have any many expectations when I was at university. I mean, my my the beginning of my career came out of the back of doing industrial placement year, um, which got set up in the you know towards the back end of my second year, and I ended up spending um, over a year at, at Hepworth Acoustics on a, an industrial placement, and. Um, that came about off the back of, of a number of knockbacks. And at the time I was kind of thinking, well, you know, I might just see my way all the way through to year three. And I ended up going on this placement, met um, a guy called Simon Shilton, Peter Hepworth at Hepworth. And at the time they were developing a, a noise mapping team, um, which, you know, back in 2003 was was kind of kind of a fresh thing. It was quite innovative. It was quite new. I'd always had a bit for computing as well. So, um, it felt, you know, it felt like a good fit for me. And I really enjoyed that, that, that year out, um, to the point where, you know, things went from 
been on industrial placement to doing kind of part-time stuff through the from my final year, them sponsoring my final year project, uh, sponsoring me through my final year, and then going straight into uh, into a job um, at the end of my degree. Um, and really, that's what kind of got my expectations of the industry was that, that year out because it was only really when I, I moved into into that type of environment, I got to see exactly all of the kind of um, applications acoustics can can have in in the real world. You know the stuff you see every day. Um, you know the way buildings are designed, the way in which you know the streets are laid out, the way they are, the way that roads end up in certain places, where aircraft fly in the sky, all those types of things. And you know, in, in literally every aspect, there's there's somebody doing some acoustics or, or noise and vibration consultancy. So. It was that that formed my my view of it. So, I mean, is it has it been what I expected? Yes, because you know, for the whole part, I've I've kind of worked in more or less all that stuff since I, I did my industrial placement. Yeah, I thought that the um, industrial placement thing at Salford was probably one of the best things about the course. I think, like you say, it gives you that taste of different things. You could dive into anything. It wasn't just consultancy. It was loudspeaker design or all sorts of things they offered you to go into, but. I think it's right. I think having that taste of year, you also leave uni with a, a year experience above others that might be lacking in that department. So, yeah, I found it really useful as well. Um, so, if if someone was considering working in acoustics, what would you recommend? Uh, how, you know, in terms of how they would approach it, and would you recommend it to them? I, I mean, I'd recommend a, a career in acoustics. I mean, I've had had one so far that's been has been pretty good and quite satisfying, and enjoyable. Um, but I mean, the, the the thing that acoustics offers is the ability to do a lot of different things in a lot of different places. Um, when I mean places, I mean different types of work. Um, you know, one of the things you kind of got to ask yourself about acoustics is which bit of it do you do you think you're going to be be in? I mean, there's architectural stuff, there's uh, sound and and you know video production stuff. There's the stuff that I do in in noise and vibration consultancy. There's a whole range of it, and even within those um, specific bits, there's um, you know different niches that people go into. You know, so I've, I've kind of built um, a career on on doing environmental noise. Some people, you know, build careers in um, you know vibration work and and all sorts of things. So it, there's different bits you can go into, and bits to bit different topics you can specialize in. So. I think the key really is is trying to identify what interests you because it only it's only better if there's an interest that kind of backs up what you're trying to do in your career as well. If you're interested in something, you're more likely to to thrive. And I think that's the joy of acoustics. Really, is that there's you can probably find acoustics in whatever interest you have if you look hard enough. I think that's a good point because one of the things I like about acoustics is um, that. People from a variety of backgrounds do it. It's not necessarily, you know, people who've just done pure acoustics at university who've, you know, decided at the age of 16 or whenever it was that that's what they want to do. You know, people who've done physics, mechanical engineers, musicians, you know, all these people thrive in the acoustics industry because everybody finds um, an aspect of it that suits their um, their particular skill set, which, which also means that the people you work with are it's quite it's quite an interesting array of people that you work with because we're not all from the same engineering background the same science background that's absolutely right and you know you i mean the, there's people you know that that we've worked with over the, the course of our careers who've come from you know, like marine biology backgrounds you know 
or have got um, you know degrees in geography. You know, they've come from different um, you know educational backgrounds, but they've ultimately had very good and um, you know very enjoyable careers in acoustics. So um, you know, it's it you, you don't have to do you know degrees to get into it. You know, there's various you know post graduate ways of getting into it and getting a, a qualification for it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing beats actually just getting on doing it <laughs> as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely. And you, you managed a team at an early age, James. I, I'm interested to hear, and I was there for some of it, but I wanted to describe <laughs> what, that was, what that was like for you and what kind of challenges you encountered. Like, what you know, you're quite young when you did it, so it must have been quite you know, a thing. Specifically the challenges when Dan was there, that's what I was yeah, going to say. I was yeah, going to say, <laughs> yeah, I mean, trying to, trying to convince a management team to recruit you, uh, you know, during the middle of a recession <laughs> was, was, quite a, was quite a success, really, and a challenge. Um, yeah. But, you know... Um, so good, we, you <laughs> Well, you like to think you are, Dan, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was challenging. I mean, I took the reins of a team before I even turned 30. And, um, you know, at that time, I'd, I'd had just over five years of, you know, experience. Um, and I think the, the, the environment I got that role in was probably the biggest challenge because you'd go to management meetings and the people who were around you would be, you know, 15, 20 years your senior. And they'd be looking at you over the table and thinking, you know, you know, should you, you really be be here? And certainly for the first uh, three to four months of, of doing that role, um, there was a lot of challenging conversations that I had to have pe- with people, um, a lot of kind of trying to, you know, almost kind of justify why you, you got that position. Um, so it wasn't easy, but, you know, at the end of the day, the the I think the, the reason I got that role in the first place was that I was able to to kind of say to people, this is what I want this team to do and this is what how I want it to, to work and this is what I think is the way in which by making it work will be best for that business. And it was really that vision and, um, you know, that ethos that, that got me that position. And it was only really after six months of, of taking that role that I think... Um, you know the the challenges became, you know, more, more or less, you know, well they became easier challenges because most people were kind of in the same way of thinking at that point, and um, you were able to, you know, you weren't telling people how to do their work. That was the other thing. You, you, you know, when you're that young, you don't know everything. You know, taking on a role like that, you don't know everything technically. You don't know how somebody should approach a, a piece of work you've not done public inquiries you've not done this that and the other so you can't you can't go in there and say now because I'm the manager we're going to do it this way you've just got to kind of you know essentially set out a, a, a range of values and you know principles you want people to do the work and hear them out and, and make decisions that you think is going to you know advance things so that was main challenges um but yeah, it, it, difficult. But it was it was very rewarding. Certainly, the longer it went down, the more rewarding it was. But I mean, I think the point to make is you're very look, lucky because you inherited such a talented team. I always. Well, yeah, no, you you know, it, it's, it, it, you're, you're right. I mean, you can't you can't have a good team without the people in the team being being good people, and certainly the the team that we 
that 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 was put together was a good team and with a you know, good range of backgrounds as well. They weren't all pure acousticians like myself. Some of them came from local authority like you, George, and um, you had you know people who'd been there for a long time and had come out of you know um, mining backgrounds and all sorts of things. So you, you had a good range of opinions, a good range of talents good good range of you know ways of thinking as well and you know it worked very well um and i guess me if if anything the one thing that i, I think i did bring to that team was to try and bring it all together because it was quite fragmented at the time I, I took it on and it did come together and it kind of moved on a bit but you know that's that's really all i did i think a point to make about it as well is that it's a different kind of challenge as well managing a technical team is that um I think I've mentioned this previously, is that people generally in the industry, I think, treat it as a career rather than a job. So you're less so managing, um, you know, uh, people's drive, uh, people not having a drive. It's basically, and you're less so, you know, managing behavioural issues and stuff like that. It's more um, helping them technically and um, pointing them in the right direction. So it's, it's a different kind of challenge and it's probably a more rewarding kind of challenge. Um, which I always think is interesting. Oh, there's nothing better actually when you you're managing people um, and you're trying. You know, you can impart so much knowledge that you have onto them, but you know, then you've got to kind of let them, you know, push them, push themselves. If anything, you've got to make them work for themselves and be self sufficient. And um, there's nothing better than seeing somebody who you've you've kind of got rolling, beginning to really get into a bit of a stride with what they do um that's very rewarding and you know that that's one of the most enjoyable bits of it is you know seeing people who you've who you work with who come in maybe is quite fresh and then you know after four or five years get you know getting to the point where they're more or less just you know able to do it with their eyes closed i mean that's that's brilliant so james what advice would you give to someone to help them manage a team who who wants to get in that position in their career but doesn't know how to get there I never really wanted to get that position. It kind of just fell on me, and um, it was kind of offered as a um, a kind of well, you know, you could do it, or we could get somebody else to do it, and the thing might not look as look look the same. <laughs> so you know, I would I would I would say if if someone, I mean, I learned a lot doing it. I mean, that's for sure. And I mean, you know, I, I learned more or less everything that I know now out of experience. I don't pretend to know everything either, um, but. I would say that, you know, anybody who runs um, a technical team can do all the paperwork and stuff that comes with it if you're working for a company or whatever. You know, that's that's just part of the parcel. Um, but you you've got to have a you've got to have a, a kind of a plan for what you want from your technical team. And when I mean that, I don't mean like on a specific project or a specific type of work that you're doing. It's more of a kind of a almost in a, a kind of agreement between you and your team as to how you want them to approach things, how you want them to work, um, you know, challenging each other to do things in a better way than they do them at the moment. Um, you've got to make it interesting. You know, you can't just, um, if, you, if you create an environment where just doing what they need to do um, to get something done is is the is the way things go. Then people will get bored pretty quickly, and you'll probably see people moving on. Even the good, you know, the very good ones will go pretty quickly. You create an environment which, you know, allows them to you know, you know, find ways they can improve themselves or different ways to do things, and be supportive of that. 
then that tends to work very well in technical environments because at the end of the day, you know, the the work that we do is the job you have to do it it's got to be done there's things you have to do but if you can make it just you know 10 20 percent more interesting then it'll pay you back you know so that'd be my advice just try and make the working environment as interesting as possible for the people you're working with are we talking like google like are we talking like ball pits and <laughs> bars <laughs> Bars, well, you know, well, Ice one cream of our officers machines. has a bar, you know, well, it was a suggestion of arcade machines. And I was, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's all good and fun and all that. But, you know, I think if, you, if you're a technical person and you like your technical work, uh, you don't want to be doing the same, doing it the same way over and over again. You want to be looking at how you can improve it. Um, you know, I've, I've always encouraged people to look at how they can do it better through... Um, uh, programming or through software or, or whatever it may be you know you know looking to build you know applications that do the work more efficiently um because by doing that it, it gives them more time to do things that they want to do to improve themselves so um always been a strong advocate of people doing training or looking at um you know what might be the next thing to do is there anything happening in the technological world that could apply to the way that we deliver work um in acoustics so I think it's that type of environment and, you know, that's the type of environment I've always liked. And, you know, apart from a, a few I've encountered, it's it's a type of environment most acousticians tend to like as well. Yeah, I mean, that's something I've definitely noticed uh, being around you, James, is that you're always striving to do things excellently, but also push boundaries and make people change and think about things differently, not just within your team, but in the industry, which is really, like, infectious to see. It's It's just, like, yeah, it's one of your good traits. Like, it's just something that you seem to pass on to others as well. So in terms of project involvement, uh, I know a little bit about what you've done over the career, but I really want to dig into what the, the highlights have been. Like, what are the things you really look back on and go, yeah, that was that was cool. What things come to mind? I mean, the first thing that stands out was when I did my first ever um, kind of, it was actually a real traffic noise project um, for a new link road. When I did it independently and I kind of using, you know, mapping software and GIS techniques and stuff. And this was like in 2004, you know, and you think, and you know, I look back at that now and I think, you know, we were doing stuff like the way people's claim is the way that you should do it now, back, you know, coming up to, you know, 18 years ago. So, sorry, <laughs> 16 <laughs> years ago, God, Cal. Um, I was really good yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, it might have been close logarithmically I don't know but anyway <laughs> um, but yeah I mean you know that was that was a standout and then doing the first of the noise mapping projects with with Simon Chilton was 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 brilliant and delivering those I mean that was um, that was a great time that was literally one year of, of just we have to make this work we have to do this we need to think of how to do it and it was literally Every week there was a new challenge, there was a new thing we had to do. And actually, in the first six months of months that probably the most enjoyable things I've done because it was it was that challenging and it, it just felt right up, up my street and we were making lots of progress. And then the second half of it, 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 it kind of petered out of it because it was all about doing all the things over and over and over again that we'd worked out how to do. Um, and then really the, the, other, the other things that spring to mind is, you know, working on the, the Ministry of Defence projects um, for the RAF and the army and 
working on all of those, some I can't probably talk to you about um, for reasons that are pretty clear. But, you know, getting involved in that side of things was was just brilliant. Um, and actually being able to go away and, you know, working with the Air Force, you know, doing measurements of aircraft and, you know, modelling of it and, you know, trying to work out how to reduce impacts from their, their operations. It was great. And to, to, you know, essentially become part of the team in doing all that, you know, was, that was great. And then, you know, more recently working on things like um, free-throw free throw expansion, particularly around the airspace stuff, which I'm still quite involved in, you know, trying to work out how to, you know, do assessments of, you know, significant numbers of airspace designs rapidly and, you know, understand which ones are the best and what the better ones are the worst ones and that kind of thing and coming up with, with approaches to that. So most of the things I look back and enjoy are the ones where I feel like I've been technically challenged, you know, where I've, I've felt, you know, there's, there's, there's got to be a solution here. We need to work out how to deliver a solution. I mean, that's, that's, that's been where I've enjoyed it. Um, and, I, I think a lot of the time it's been helped on the way by just meeting some really interesting people. Um, and in all of those you know, projects and experiences, I can I'll just recall, I mean, I've, I've met some brilliant people and worked with some excellent people, you know, cross-discipline as well. And that's the other thing about acoustics, which has always you know, kept me entertained, is you learn so much about different things, you know. You're learning about how a train works one week or how an aircraft works the next, or, you know, you're talking to somebody about how an incinerator is going to operate in the future, you know, that type of thing. You, you learn about so many different things. And so if you've got a kind of a, <clears throat> an in, kind of a, a mind that int- you're interested about things and it, you're intrigued about things, it, it's, a, it's a good good career for that. When you talked about the defence, the one thing that comes to mind and thing that George and I talk about and refer to a lot is when we were doing like, measurements behind aircraft and i think you sent us to do measurements of like a big c-17 thing and it was you know they got that was the, away. that was the canadian air force wasn't it i think <laughs> yes, they were the only ones that, yeah. they were the only ones that would allow us to do it yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you know it, it, it's not, <laughs> there's not many there's again that's another part of it of the job was like convincing people to to give you um give you their aircraft for an afternoon so you can do some measurements of it and play with it you know and you know, being the first civilian on a on, on an A400M, you know that type of thing. It, it's it's that type of you know thing that that, that 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 makes it rewarding. But yeah, I mean, sending you guys to do a load of measurements at the back end of a of a of a military prop plane, you know, that's that's quite amusing, really, isn't it? I don't know whether you whether you whether you uh, whether you got what you expected there or not. <laughs> if if I remember rightly, the question was uh, Dan asked him. Um, said, can I stand 50 metres behind the aircraft while you run the engines up? And the guy said, you can do, but I wouldn't recommend it. And so I was like, oh, I'll do it then. <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> I thought you were going to get blown away. Yeah, I mean, you, if you want to turn yourself into FOD, that's a good way of doing it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, you know, I, I remember doing some measurements off the back of a C1, C-130 and, um, you know, literally having to jump um you know, behind two buildings to try and get something that resembled a decent measurement. And yeah, I mean, my my recollection of that was just how cold it was. You know, with the air, you literally mm. can see your see your breath in the in the backwash off the plane. But yeah, you, there's 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 lots of things. I mean, I've been and uh, measured firing ranges on those military projects. I've been measuring tanks. I've been doing vibration monitoring of people tossing concrete barrels out the back of planes. You know, there's, there's stuff like that. I mean, it's a, it's a 
I mean, that's that's probably a, a, a somebody you want to get on this podcast to talk to is somebody from the defence area because it is. It, I think that is a brilliant job. Somebody retired, maybe. Maybe <laughs> yes, we could maybe look for our contact Tell box us all and, your and find somebody. <laughs> <laughs> find somebody who can answer those questions. <laughs> so, James, you've I mean, you've worked on some of the largest infrastructure projects, UK and I suppose internationally as well. Um, for those who haven't worked on those kind of projects, what what sort of was it? What was it like? How what is it like working on that in that kind of role? I'll not lie, it gets quite intense. Um, you know, a lot of the time those projects have very clear timeframes. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, management and scrutiny of them, not just within the project itself, but externally. You know, there's always people who are anti or for it or you know there's you know legal challenges and you know a lot of the time the projects are run by the lawyers um so it it can be quite uh it can be quite uh, an intense environment to work in on those projects and um you know it you do tend to find yourself becoming part of the project it's not something you end up being able to um dabble in and just say, oh, I'm going to spend a, a couple of days this week on this, or I'll I'll do this when when somebody asks me to. You literally become part of it, um, and you become a cog in that machine. And um, you know, when that machine is is firing at all cylinders, you end up having to fire with all cylinders with it. It, it can be quite an intense, uh, a tense thing, but it's usually um, rewarded by the fact that when you hit certain milestones on them, that you you know you kind of share in the success of that. Um, but um, yeah, they're, they're intense things. One of the things that um, I'm aware of is that um, it's not just about the technical work. So somebody might think it's, you know, it's an extremely difficult project. You must spend the whole time just doing on the technical side, but it's all those other attributes, um, you know, the communication side, the engagement side, the project management side it takes up it takes up so much of your time and it's it's something that might not be apparent to somebody who hasn't worked on those kind of projects. Yeah, I mean, you, you literally have to justify every every minute you spend on something. You're constantly um, having to demonstrate that whatever you do complies with a policy, a piece of legislation, a piece of guidance. And it's pretty quickly how um, somebody can find grey areas in all of that, you know, where if there's different ways you can do things, um, that you literally have to write your own justification for doing it. And the number of jobs I've worked on in those projects where you're ultimately trying to convince um, a lawyer at the end of the day that what we're going to do is the best way to do it with with the situation that we're in or the, the information we've got available to us or whatever it may be. So uh, you do find yourselves doing things that aren't necessarily the, the technical work um, and that's good because you you end up learning and um, experiencing different sides of what it takes to to get consents in in you know the built environment. You know how do you get a consent for for this? You know what are the rules around that? What does the regulation say about how you should assess uh, something? You know you end up working cross discipline as well. So you know talking to your counterparts in you know air quality very you know very interlinked subject with noise, you know, landscape and visual, tranquility, biodiversity, and all these kinds of things. So you do tend to find yourself learning more and more about 
what other people need from a noise expert um, to do their work as well. So yeah, it's um, very interesting environment. But which, I mean, I suppose I'm interested. Which of those aspects do you find most challenging, or did you, you know, was it the, was it the technical side, or was it all the other was it all the other activities, or is it the technical side of those have always been hasn't been a problem because you know you, you you kind of I think if you trust your your judgment you can you can defend whatever you do um, technically. Um, the challenging bit really has always been on in that type of role on those type of projects is um, the paperwork that goes along with it and you know making sure that you you follow the rules sort of rules about what you do the way in which you you write things you know you have to write in a certain style as approved ways of, of doing your documents. Um, there's document management processes, there's project management processes, there's commercial management aspects of it, which are challenging, um, you know, reviewing people's timesheets, making sure that people are spending their time at the right rates, um, you know, that the scope matches what we're actually delivering, all of those sorts of things. So that that is, um, that is challenging because... Um, at that point, it's it's no longer really about what you're doing; it's about how you're doing it, and that's um, you know that that's probably not my biggest strength, in all honesty, and it hasn't been. Um, uh, but it is something that you have to do, and um, if anything, if you've got weaknesses in those areas, it, it tends to get magnified on those types of projects. Mm-hmm. So, James, you're um, you're an expert in um, aviation noise, and you've worked for a majority of. Um, the airports in the UK. Um, for those listening who haven't actually worked um, on uh, aviation noise projects, um, can you briefly describe why noise is an important factor in the consideration of the operation of an airport? It is literally because it's one of the few things that people genuinely notice about the way in which an airport operates. Um, you know, even if you can't see the plane, most of the time you can see it. And the number of times you hear it and how often and how loud is is very much part of the equation that describes how annoyed somebody could be or how sleep disturbed somebody could be. And that ultimately leads into um, effects such as um, sleep disturbance. And as we know from recent um, evidence, it, it leads to health effects. Um, so you know it, it's it's an important consideration not just because people notice it and can be annoyed by it but they can actually have their health damaged by it uh, so james a majority of the projects that you've worked on seem to be in relation to changes at an airport you know like ra- runway extensions operation changes changes in aircraft types um in these kind of situations what sort of considerations do you think need to be made in the assessment mitigation and the considerations for noise really there's a lot to un- unpack out of that. I mean, I I would start by saying that you you need to understand what you think the potential impacts are going to be of, of whatever the development proposals happen to be. So um, get an idea of where you think the changes are going to occur, the magnitude of the changes, and then begin drilling into that, doing predictions, um, doing modelling ultimately to identify you know just what those magnitudes are going to be, the, the geospatial um, parts of the impact. And then get to the point where you're starting to look at what guidance and policy says. You know, does policy indicate, for example, that we need to provide uh, noise insulation? Does it potentially indicate that there's a, a need to provide 
um, rehousing or you know the the support towards moving people away from those areas, and you know ultimately looking at what the the options for mitigation are. I mean, the, the mitigation options on on airport developments depend mostly upon what the development actually is and what you can do, and. The way, in, certainly in the UK, the way the systems are, are are set up is there's different ways in which you can implement that mitigation. Some of it can be done for the planning system. Some of it can be done through the, the airspace change process. Some of it can be done through the um, through voluntary agreements with the by the airport. So there's a range of ways in which <clears throat> you can you can do the mitigation. So the very early part of those projects, you you need to begin to you know draft out your your strategy for understanding and articulating the effects um how you're going to mitigate it and then also being really clear with the with the developer about what they're going to have to do to um to to put right any impacts that they they have so there's a there's a lot to do and um you know the 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 main issue with airport noise than any other type of environmental noise is you know, you, you can't build fences, you can't put it in cuttings, you can't, you make it suddenly disappear from the sky, it's going to be there. So, you know, most of the most of the things you can do are ultimately about the, the aircraft themselves and what they're doing or what's actually happening on the ground. So it's, you know, your, your options are, are more limited than they would be with other types of environmental noise. It's, it's a difficult beast, isn't it? And it's completely different to anything else you would probably deal with in the noise environment, just because of those mitigation constraints you can't really do a lot like you say apart from manipulate the aircraft change when they're flying um what seems to be the biggest issue you've found over the various airports you've worked with what seems to be the most problematic source that you can't do much about you have to think more about where it's placed what seems to be the routine thing that's just a pain to deal with to be honest with you um you know the technical the technical side of it you can always find things you can do and you know where how how you know influential they are, and you know just how much they they end up being able to mitigate it. You know that that comes down to to what's possible. But the biggest challenge, really, certainly working on you know, actually working on both sides of the fence, you know, working for the you know the developers and the local authorities and the the regulators, like I do sometimes. It's it's the trust. It's the trust between the 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 airports, the airlines, the the regulators. And then ultimately the people who are affected by it is the, the general population, the communities, you know, the people who, you know, sometimes um, claim to represent them in the former campaign groups. It's, you know, if you, you know, you can work for an airport developer and have all the best of intentions about how to um, you know, go about mitigating um, the, the impacts of the development, but the, you know, the, 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 the trust between um, communities, campaign groups, the airports, it takes a lot to earn that and it's very, very quickly broken and takes a long time to build back up. So, um, you know, we we think that, you know, trust is a, is a massive part of, of, you know, improving the way airport noise is managed. Um, it's certainly one of the, the three kind of areas where we think there's a lot that could be done to improve attitudes towards aviation. Um, there's, there's certainly a, a role for the industry and um, the stakeholders in there to be looking at more transparent ways of, of presenting impacts, um, working with with communities to to help present those impacts and where they they better understand. Um, we we think that's in, entirely um, entirely appropriate because 
it is the it is the one big issue that we face literally on every type of airport project. Yeah, I think consultation has improved in recent years, especially in the UK. But I think there's still a lot more that could be done to make it more transparent. And when you say transparent, it's also kind of meaning that noise is a confusing thing. It's not very easily understandable uh, to the layperson. So I think that's our difficulty when we're doing these sorts of things. Absolutely right. I mean, you... You know that we we do a lot of the, a lot of the policies are you know in literally every country around the world are based around you know an average amount of noise exposure from an airport operation. You know the people who live around the airport never experience that average. Um, they can't relate to it. They find it difficult to to understand how you know they they're being said they're not affected by it when when it's based on on some sort of average. So there's been a lot done to to look at metrics which people better understand the way they're affected by it. The the biggest challenge is that a lot of them don't tend to relate to the effects from from the aircraft noise. They're more for communication purposes and people will say well you know we we need more research to show how some of these more communicative metrics and methods kind of relate to um, the the impacts that people receive, and you know, there's a lot to to be lot to be done on that in my in my mind. Um, and just looking at the the ways that engagement takes place, um, you know, there's been a, a lot of work over the last um, 12, 18 months to try and improve that. Um, we've got um, new airspace change guidance, which which takes a little bit of a step onwards. We've got advice coming from. Um, ICANN, the Independent Commission for Civil Aviation Noise, which again improves upon that. Um, but there's still a long way to go, and it'd be great if there could be a consensus reached around, um, you know, exactly what um, people should present when they're trying to articulate changes in aircraft noise. I suppose I've got a question a bit about engagement. I mean, with your experience, where does the UK rank? Would you say internationally in terms of engagement? on um, uh, airport noise? It's well beyond a lot of the places I've worked in. I mean, I, I've i done work in, in places like Africa, Eastern Europe, um, North America, um, and this, the work that has to go on in the UK to evidence and communicate potential impacts, and particularly on the airspace change front now with, with the, um, the more recent um, guidance that's come from the CAA, it's a lot more um, involved than um, it's a lot more involved than than what it is in other countries. Um, so I think we we do have um, a more comprehensive way of doing it, but it's it's far from perfect. And you know, in many ways, you know, you're probably not going to find a perfect way of of doing it. Um, but what you can do is is begin to understand local priorities, and I think that's one of the other things that we we sometimes miss is that we tend to, to focus too much around the generic guidance rather than looking at what really matters to people. And I think there is, there's more that, there is more that can be done around that. So James, let's move away from aviation noise for, uh, for a little bit. Um, I suppose my question is that you've worked on um, some major noise mapping projects um, you know, involving transportation noise. Would you say that transportation noise is as big an issue is ever, or would you say largely that the mitigation and management measures that have been put in place have been largely successful? I know that's a bit of a loaded question, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the noise mapping projects have been, you know, principally driven off EU directives 
for a number of years. Um, they've delivered maps of noise exposure across you know the devolved administrations and England, and you know it gives us an idea of how many people are exposed to certain levels of noise. Um, whether I, whether there's whether there's been genuine action off the back of that is quite debatable, and you know the noise action plans that have been produced have, have very often just been tick boxing exercise, and it's sometimes I sometimes struggle to understand um, how much people have actually done off the back of those maps to to try and reduce impacts, and whether mitigation is you know genuinely being derived off the back of the off the noise map. So I do wonder whether um more emphasis needs to be placed on the noise action plans and the noise maps i mean i think going back to the, the first few rounds of them i think there was very much a case of saying this is the technical challenges you know, how do we produce these maps you know, how do we calculate every 10 meters across the country for all of these roads gather the data produce the models that do this and you we kind of you kind of get that far <clears throat> and then you think well you know how are we actually can deliver improvements in in noise exposure from our major roads major railways and um you know using these maps as a tool and you know there arguably is a lot more work that could be done to to make those things more meaningful um so i would say that it's you know that it's a good it's a good tool it's a it's a tool that we should have particularly when we're facing EU exit as well, and whether that's something that we want to continue doing afterwards. Um, but the, the the purpose of them, I think, needs to be rethought. Um, and what do we want to get out of them? And I think, you know, it'd be nice to see some very clear visions about what we want from um, strategic noise mapping and action planning. And if if we if we don't do them, what what's going to replace them? And what do we think is going to be the best way of um, you know, putting a policy together that means that we're looking to improve the noise environment for those particularly who were exposed to the highest levels of, of road and railway noise. I actually think they're really they're really good thing because I think the biggest problem is that people use them as absolutes. So they say that it represents this level at this place. And actually the power in them is that it demonstrates relative difference so it's you know the same accuracy in inaccuracies is is is, uh is this is the same inaccuracy exists but they, they still show a relative difference between two positions and actually as well i think we're finding that um it has quite strong uses outside of um the noise industry so other disciplines find the information useful as well i know uh james and myself spoke to um a um, an ecologist who actually um, they they actually use strategic noise maps because it gives them uh, sufficient information for the, the work that they do um, historic environment work um, all these other all these other disciplines I suppose do, do you see that as being the future strategic noise maps or do you see is it being replaced with something else um, I wouldn't like to see the end of them um, I might be saying that because you know I, I kind of enjoyed working on those jobs but. There's, I think the, there's a bit of a shame in that the, as you as you kind of alluded to there, that the, the the maps themselves and the things you can do with those maps, you know, we haven't really scratched the surface of. You know, we've got these maps across England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and have had them, you know, for for several years. But you know, all we've really been doing with them is counting the number of people and number of properties that are in certain bands. Um, 
you know, and also the the scope of the maps means that you you're kind of neglecting things that are becoming more important, such as the impact of noise on on habitats and open spaces, recreational areas, areas of outstanding natural beauty, and those types of things. So, you you know, there's you know, if we can change the scope of the maps and what we do, you know, why do we have to you know map only certain things um, that the regulations say? Could we extend the the extent of those maps? Could we then use the results of those maps to begin um, identifying whether we can start making relationships between noise exposure, things like productivity, access to open space, relatively quiet open space, make genuine, um, you know, genuine research projects about how you could better design, um, you know, new garden cities and things like that by looking at experiences elsewhere, that type of thing. I think there's a lot more we can do with them than, than what we've essentially under the regulations are told what to do with them. So I think there's a lot more end uses that can come from them than than what we have been doing with them right now. I think we have a lot more data as well, maybe in the last two to five years. We've got a lot more health data available. You know, a lot of people wear Fitbits, things have been installed in their phones. We know, start to know a lot more about people's sleep disturbance if it's shared with us. So I think we're moving into this kind of big data age where we can start to have this data that we wished we had. We, we now kind of are in that, you know, precipice of getting to the point where we've got the data that, to make these things way more useful. Uh, I mean, in noise mapping, I've, I find that the industrial stuff sometimes isn't representative, but I know we're talking about transportation, but I think the more we move to sharing data and people doing like individual industrial assessments, which is very much the case for those types of projects, can then share models with people that are doing the noise mapping and then we can start to integrate models all together. You know, we're kind of making assumptions on that sort of thing. So the more we share and have this data pool, I think the better these things will become. And and I don't think they should go away. I think we should do a lot more of them because they are, I mean, transportation in terms of rail and road, they're, they're quite accurate. You know, they're, they're pretty realistic in terms of the levels that we're getting out of them. Uh, even more than measurement in a lot of cases, just because we have a lot more variation due to, you know, met conditions and all sorts of things going on, um, COVID, etc. Um, but I guess generally, in terms of noise assessment, do you think it will change a lot as we move in the next five, ten years? Yeah, I think noise assessment's going to evolve quite considerably. I mean, if you if you think back maybe five or six years ago, noise impact assessment was was very much about you know decibels um and you know changes in those decibels the levels of of noise that people were getting you know the whole thing's moving very much towards health endpoints so you know is a is a is this development for example going to result in a certain number of disability adjusted life years or you know an increased risk of people having heart attacks or whatever it might be it'll it'll end up a, a health um more of a health type assessment so the noise assessment will ultimately become more of a health assessment and you know certainly in england you know you, you've got policies around health and quality of life and quality of life is is another thing which you know we we need to do more on you know it's not something that you can articulate just through a, a single number in a report it's got a lot more wider circumstances and you know, I mean, in in, in aviation, you know, we we're talking about aviation, but it's, it it does kind of set the pace for for what you do in noise assessment terms because it is the one of the most controversial forms of environmental noise. And I mean, if you look at 
quality of life research. At the moment, there was a very good lecture I um, tuned into a few weeks ago, which was saying, well, look, you know, you've got these airports that have had significant reductions in noise because the operations have, have fallen off a cliff as a result of the pandemic. Um, but actually, you know, how do you begin to contextualize the the noise component of quality of life when, you know, a number of people who live around the airport who are exposed to this reduction in noise may be losing their jobs because the airport's no longer you know, able to sustain the staff pool that it has, you know, the the bus drivers aren't able to take people to and from the airport, you know, all the shops aren't able to sell, you know, sandwiches to the workers and these types of things. So I think beginning to understand noise in the context of, you know, that it's a consequence of what society is um, and understanding it. And that's going to be a lot more of um, a lot more, um, a lot more, part of the the way in which we do our assessment work and i think as well you know the the concept of soundscape is becoming an increasing um an increasingly you know important part of the way we start thinking about um proposals where there may be noise impacts or there may be a an, an ability to change the, the the sound of a place that we're trying to to do develop um and again, that that is something that we're starting to see in, in national policies here and there. And you know, the, again, there's there's work that needs to be done to really begin to quantify and demonstrate how you would do assessments like that, and how you begin to inject those values of soundscaping into projects. But again, you can see that moving towards that as well. And then, then finally, you know, you, you think about trying to articulate. Um, a, a project which may be controversial from a noise standpoint to somebody who's making a decision on it. Well, you know, a, a PDF report is is no longer really the the best way of doing that. And you can see for a lot of the infrastructure projects, particularly the, the use of, you know, VR oralization and things like that to begin to communicate the effects. So you're saying, well, you might have a one or two dB increase, but what does that really mean? What does that mean for you if you're, you're stood by the side of the road that's going to see that change. So there's that type of thing that's going to that's going to be more apparent. Um, so yeah, it, it's going to change, and you know, I, I can well see that the, the the type of stuff that we do in in 15 years' time is going to be somewhat different to what we do right now. No, it's, I mean it's definitely interesting when you mention about quality of life because whether you think people's sensitivity to quality of life has changed or whether they've become aware, more aware of it. It's definitely changed. Um, and I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is about, um, you know, this flexible working that's, um, you know, it's been talked about a lot at the moment and how that actually impacts on how we do our noise assessments because quite a lot of time our noise assessments are structured in terms of concentrating sensitivity over certain periods and in certain areas and um, by changing changing how people work when they work where they work that is I think that will be something that will be more you know, be more difficult to deal with in the future because we you won't be able to necessarily say when somebody's less sensitive to something, you you it'd be more difficult to judge what the average person would be doing at a certain time. One good example of that is you know siesta. You know you, you know in the middle of the day in Spain, it's a, it's arguably as sensitive as the night. You know, and you could foresee that sort of situation occurring in you know in in this country with with changes in patterns in behaviour, as you say. So it's not um, you know you, you 
at the end of the day, that requires changes in policies and guidance and how you, you go about assessing that thing. Um, and if there are cultural changes, then ultimately the way you have to assess things has to keep up with that. I guess one of the changes that I thought of as a bit of fun to kind of end this kind of technical discussion is the kind of delivery drone aspects that's always gets pushed around by, you know, likes of Amazon, etc. Have you ever had any thoughts, James, about how we might manage and look at the impacts of those sorts of things? <laughs> yes, I have. Um, just been part of a, 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 albeit failed, attempt to to get some research funding on that. But yeah, I mean, there are um, there, there there is a drive. Certainly in the in the UK, there's a drive from government to be looking at um, making unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, able to to do those types of things. Whether it be deliveries, whether it be um, supporting other activities that could be done more efficiently through the air, so that there's there is a drive towards it. Um, as as you can probably guess, they're not quiet. And, you know, if you were to end up with a series of drone routes um, in the UK or anywhere, there's likely to be a noise impact from them. So it's um, it's something that needs to be looked at. I think there is there is a it's one of these situations where I think you've got to ask policymakers and um, because ultimately it is something that can only be driven from from a government level, whether they want to understand what the potential implications and impacts of that type of um, thing are going to be now or are they going to want to wait until that infrastructure is in place and those activities are happening and then deal with it you know as a as a kind of an afterthought you know so you know my view would be that there's there's a need to look at it seriously because it is something that's going to happen um and there's certainly as you mentioned before amazon are very keen on that type of thing and indeed there are places where those tests are going on so you know to 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 at least be able to understand how people react to it is going to be quite important because it's not it's not like a normal aircraft um because most of the time these things are so small that you don't even know where they are so you you can hear them but you can't see them and they have a very distinct character to them, um, and a characteristic which which is arguably got you know quite a few annoyance characteristics associated with it as well. So, you know, you you would want to do research on that. You would want to understand how it can be mitigated. You would want to understand whether there are limits on what should happen in that type of activity. I you know, do you want to be sending 50 drones an hour over somebody's house is that a good thing you know is that and is that something that people will be quite happy to let happen without any consultation on um you know it's all those things that we we need to we need to um understand and, and get a handle of yeah i think the height of them flying is probably going to be one of the more challenging things because you could like when you're talking about drone routes and stuff they could like fly similar routes to what the roads do or whatever but they're, they're flying a lot lower than aircraft so it's going to be tough I think there's different types of drones, different types of um, there's different types of rules around them as well. Um, you know, it, it is you know that you can you can see them, and again, I don't even know whether they are something that you know at the moment you could argue is 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 something that falls under nuisance legislation, or is it something that ends up falling under um, under some sort of exemption from that. But you know, my experience of them is that they 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 have enough about them to become a potential um well they, they they're almost certainly going to be a noise issue of the future in the same way that things like wind farms 
you know, um, air source heat pumps and that type of thing have become um, issues, noise issues as technology has changed. Um, you know, so there is a there is there is a genuine need to be looking at what could happen with that type of activity becoming routine. Okay, so we've reached that part in the episode where we are going to crack a beer and discuss some of the or outline some of the news that's coming out. So here we go, guys. <laughs> I hear an empty already, George. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. Who's that? That was me. I'm, I'm off the beer, oh, right. so I've got uh, I've got a Pepsi Max. Pepsi Max. <laughs> <laughs> what? Living it to the max. Um, what have geez. you got, Dan? Hold on, have have a sip and see if I can guess what it is. Oh, lemon Fanta. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Iced tea. Well, you WKD. I've got um, I've gone North American. See if you can guess what it is. Cause. Oh, close. <laughs> oh. <laughs> what light? Oh, even closer. Very close. Very warm. What's um, that? Budweiser. Oh, right. Okay. Bud fat. I had, I had a joke about a brewery the other day, but I'm, I might not say it. Oh, go on. It was um, <laughs> the, the, the three guys going to a pub, and one works for the Guinness factory, one works for Coors, and one works for Budweiser. And they go in, and the Budweiser guy orders a Budweiser, the Coors guy orders a Coors, and the guy from the Guinness factory orders water. And they go, what the hell are you ordering water for? And he goes, well, I thought we weren't drinking. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. How, how does that go down in North America, Dan? Not well. <laughs> cool. Right, so let's dig into some topics. So I pulled up a few fun news articles. So the University of Plymouth has done a recent study and kind of thought on teleportation in live musical performance. Um, so they're actually thinking this might be possible for doing high-tech jamming sessions through a blend of live human and computer-generated sounds coming together to form like a performance. Um, what do you guys think about this? What do you mean by teleportation? It's basically like simulating people, you know what I mean? Not really teleportation, it's like they are playing together. Or like, but like remotely. So, oh well, I've seen them do. You can can't you hire like, isn't it like Elton John or something? And it's like, a, it's like a projection of him, like running around the stage. And you can have him for weddings and stuff. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is that something that. I just dreamt? <laughs> <laughs> Is he coming to your wedding? That... Yeah, well, I keep asking him. <laughs> Uh, so it's like it's the you know the whole quantum thing for teleportation. So it's they're kind of instantly transmitting information over long distances. That's what they call teleportation. It's not in the way we think of in like you know Star Trek and stuff like that. So is this you plugging uh, yourself down to play at people's weddings around the world? Yeah, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> you Jimmy Page. Not yet. Yeah, hologram Dan. <laughs> there you go, Dan Clayton. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> Dan. So yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I thought that was something uh, to share. People dig into that. There's another one which is about crabs, uh, not in the way that George might think. It's uh, ship noise leaves crabs too stressed to hide from danger. So apparently, um, yeah, the ocean is getting too loud even for crabs. So, I don't know. What do you guys think about the, the crab situation? James? 
well, <laughs> I mean, that, <laughs> I, I can't pretend that I know the ins and outs of how crabs work. Um, <laughs> but you will anyway. <laughs> well, all, all I know was there was an article, um, I'm sorry to go a little bit off topic, but it's relevant. There was an article uh, in uh, a paper the other day that said uh, you that a lot of dolphins had reappeared off the coast of some country and they, th- they thought that that was a result of the fact that the shipping lanes weren't being used as much and the, the noise in the the noise in the in the shipping lanes is reduced to the point where the dolphins had felt safe enough to return back to where they were before so i can see there's some sense in it i mean i i said i don't know the mechanics of it but it seems logical to me <laughs> george have you got any um words of wisdom on the crabs uh no I've been crabbing so basically you're saying you're more likely to catch crabs with a comb (laughs) (laughs) oh dear me actually that that, that reminds me actually a friend of Hannah's um didn't realize he was messaging in a, in a group chat in whatsapp um and um had asked about um whether uh lotion and a comb was the suitable um mitigation for crabs but then quickly realized he'd messaged it to everybody he knew <laughs> yeah. good use friend of the word of mitigation there george <laughs> yeah friend <laughs> No, I'm actually asking the question. <laughs> well, if anyone has any advice for George, um, leave them in the comments below or send us an email. Now basically, I'm uh, saying, if you go crabbing, do you go crabbing in noisy places? That's basically... I, w- I would have thought that, um, quite, you know, quiet harbours and stuff might be a better place to go catching crabs, but you're basically saying that they won't hide um, yeah. if, it's, if it's noisy, so it's better to go in a noisy place. Yeah, basically, yeah. So about half the crabs exposed to ship noise apparently didn't respond to the, any attack that was thrown at them. Scouser, bird, anything like that. So um, they were too slow to hide themselves, basically. So yeah, crabbing in noisy environments seems to be the place to go, apparently. And then one final one that's kind of linked to James a little bit is um, NASA. Let's mention a bit about NASA. They are looking into approaches for modeling new aircraft and oralization techniques for planes, aircraft that don't exist yet. So they're trying to model that sort of thing. Um, And they're doing tests uh, to try and simulate these things and see what they might sound like. So I think this is interesting because we're obviously not at the point yet, but we're moving towards electrification of transportation. So aviation is the thing that's hanging about in this kind of arena. But I know people are working on it. What, What do you think about this, James? When the concepts around novel aircraft design have been um been out there for some time now um i mean i've actually done a little bit of looking into what how nasa do some of that modeling they've got a software called ANOP and all sorts of things but they they are seriously looking at um airframe design as being the next kind of revolution in in aircraft noise and emissions performance and you know you see these very interesting designs where you know people are literally sitting in the wings and the the engines are on top of the plane you know you kind of screening um screening people on the ground from the from the noise from the engines by the plane itself in many ways um so it's it's you know there is 
you know, there's there's a lot to be said for it. You know, the airframe is becoming more important as well for noise. So anything that they can do to to reduce that by looking at different ways of designing an aircraft, then yeah, go for it. Let's see what happens. I think isn't the point that the fact that they're actually modelling the the, the you know, the oralizing the likely sound from the aircraft rather than doing yeah. these these me- these um uh, the measurements that they do at the minute in terms of um, determining the sound power level of the aircraft. Yeah, so they're using yeah. computer models, flight measurements, wind tunnel data, and they're kind of predicting the sonic characteristics of the aircraft. Yeah, that's what they're doing. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, if you could, I mean, just let's say, you know, hypothetically, if you could make an aircraft sound less like an aircraft and sound something like something a lot nicer, let's say an aircraft passing you overhead sounded like a wave coming in at the beach. You know, would that be a lot more appealing? You'd have a lot of people that needed the toilet the whole time, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if they drink as much as you do, then (laughs) yeah. But yeah, you could you can see that you know that that type of character of the sound is going to be important um, going forward. And you know, we all know it. You know, if it's if it's you can have the same level of dB, but you know how it sounds can be you know vital to perception. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Let's see. Let's see how far they go with it. If you had an option, how, what would you make an aircraft that sound like? <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to say silent because then I'd be out of the game, would I? <laughs> <laughs> as loud as possible. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I think if you could, yeah, if you could do anything just to soften it, if it wasn't as harsh, um, and you know, you, you, the rise time of the event could be you know, dragged out a little bit, maybe it, it could it could improve things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to say wave, like living in Alberta, we're kind of nowhere near the ocean, so hearing a wave, you'd be like, what the hell, is that a tsunami or something? <laughs> You're shitting yourself? <laughs> <laughs> That's just a plane, it's all right, guys, stand down. It's all right, but then again, then again, there'd be a tsunami, and everyone'd be like, no, it's fine, it's a plane. Just <laughs> <laughs> grabbing the bucket and spade, running around. No, it's been great to have you on, James. Um, appreciate your time. And it's interesting to hear those uh, kind of elements that you don't tend to talk about down the pub and stuff. So it's, it's yeah, it's really appreciated that you've come and done this. So if you're watching the video, guys, uh, put a like, a comment and share the video. It's really appreciated. And we've got way more subscribers on YouTube than I ever thought we would do in like a few years of doing this. So I'm hoping that it's uh, bringing value to you guys. So if you're listening on the podcast, it would be great if you rate the podcast, leave a review and subscribe. And uh, if you have a story that you want to share with, an interesting career or project that you're working on, then just email us at noisebustersdb at gmail.com and let us know or speak to either George or myself on LinkedIn. There's a few people that have done that. So very excited to have Underwater Acoustics as our next episode. So stay tuned for that and tune in. So thanks, James, again. No and, pleasure. Uh, yeah. Thanks, George, and I guess we will see you next time. Cheers.